This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, another edition of Holding Court here. Patrick McEnroe, I'm very happy to welcome in a guy who's pretty much done it all. Uh, When you look at his resume as a journalist for uh, the New York Daily News for so many years, all the books he's written, which have been incredibly successful, his own career in television on the Sports Reporters for ESPN, his own radio show, which I was on quite a few times back in the day on ESPN, the one and only Mike Lupica. Mike is uh, calling in from his place in Florida. So good to have you, Mike. Patrick, I was trying to remember the other day how old I, you were a teenager, I believe, when I first met you. But I can't remember how old you were when we first met. I, my first memory of, of meeting you, I think, was at the Garden at the Masters when they used to play the tennis Masters of the top eight men in the world. Uh, used to play there in the mid '70s through the early '80s, and uh, I mean, it, you know, growing up as I did in New York and in Queens, and then going to high school in the city, it, you know, any big sporting event that happened we had to hear what Loopy had to say about it. We had to read your column, Mike Lupica's column. So someone who has, you know, covered New York, covered sports in general, but particularly New York sports. Uh, and I, it, it was always great to me that somebody like you that I've had on such a high pedestal as far as their interest in sports always love tennis. Because, you know, I find a lot of people in, in, in your world and in, in our world that, eh, you know, tennis, menace, you know, never gave it a lot of respect. But you always, you know... Loved New York sports. You were the go-to guy, but you always had a great passion for tennis. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know how that started. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. It started with Bud Collins, Patrick. Mm-hmm. I was working nights at the Boston Globe while I was going to Boston College. And I was always writing around, and I was writing for the Boston Phoenix and Boston Magazine. I was writing for the Globe, too. And Bud Collins would call from these far-flung places. And I, in, in those days, he would dictate his column. Mm-hmm. And when I would hear it was Bud on the phone, because I was such a huge fan of his, I would arrange that I took the dictation. And then we started talking when he finished. And he said, kid, I, well, I'll meet you when I get back. And when he got back, he found out that I had, you know, had ambitions to do this for a living. And he started taking me to tennis tournaments. And the first money I ever made, Patrick, this is a name that will only be meaningful to you and me, <laughs> right. was writing program pieces for the great Harold Zimmon, who okay. used to do all sure. of the USTA yearbooks and programs and the U.S. Open program. Right. That was the first money. And then and then the year I graduated from, from Boston College, a thousand years ago, Bud said, kid, you're going to go to Wimbledon. And somehow he finagled me a, te- a press pass to cover Wimbledon, even though the Boston Phoenix, which was like the Village Voice Boston, was a weekly. Mm-hmm. And by halfway through that Wimbledon, I had a press A credential. And and I went to Wimbledon from 74 through John beating Borg the year after the tiebreaker match. 80, 81, right. There's a whole other story mm-hmm. about that because you can remember John was at, this will shock you, was at war with the whole all England establishment. And <laughs> what a I shocker. Remember, right. I re- Patrick, I remember when you remember how hard it used to be just to make a phone call in London? Yes. Okay. I remember he and I talked on the phone the night before the final. He said, I'm going to win that match tomorrow and then I'm never coming back here. And I said, well, maybe we ought to just pump the brakes on that <laughs> for now. Right. 
let, let's pump the brakes on that for now and, and, and win the match, which, which he did the next day. So I saw Jimmy beat Rosewall in 74. Mm-hmm. I saw Arthur beat Jimmy in 75. Right. I saw at least a piece of every match Borg played in those five Wimbledons in a row that he won. And then I saw John beat him. And then I didn't go back until uh, 1987, just just on, on a lark with with my wife, Taylor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, well, I mean, it's a podcast. I, I've got another story about that. You, you, can, you can go on and on. Absolutely. Okay. Please. Okay. This is why I have you on. So it's, it's Patrick. It's 87. Right. I haven't been back in six years. And the day that I go over there, they gave me a pass and I was fine. And Taylor and her mom were out shopping somewhere. And Jimmy was playing Michael Pernforce mm. on center court in the round of 16. 6-1, six, 6-1, one, six, one, one, right. Yes, sir. Okay, I don't have to tell you that stuff. <laughs> no, okay? you don't have to tell me that. And but... I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to write that day. I wasn't even going to hang around. But Jimmy, you know, Jimmy and I have now been friends for since 1974. So I said, you know what? I, I did so much writing about this guy. And by the way, this is four years before he beat somebody in the first round at the Open. And then, <laughs> right. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay? Exactly. And I said, I got to if, if this is the end for him, because he was he was 35 that day. And then he holds and breaks. And I forget who I think I was next to Ubaldo Scanagatti. And I said. Great, you know, great Italian person, journalist like you. Great, right. No, no, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. I got another story about him. Okay. Right. I turned to him and I said, you know, there's only one person here who thinks he's got a chance now. And I pointed down to Jimmy. Mm-hmm. He'd lost 16 out of the first 19 games. He comes back and wins the match. It's just one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And it really was, it almost was prescient about what would happen four years later at the Open. And that day, I'm waiting for Connors um, down by the men's locker room, and I, Billie Jean comes walking along, and she 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 was just so fired up about what she'd seen, mm-hmm. and she said, "You know what?" She said, "Someday when Borg is 50 years old, he's going to wake up in the middle of the night, and he's going to think, what if?" And she said, "As great as John has been, John's going to wake up and say the same thing." And she pointed up at the locker room, and she said, "That guy's never going to what if his career." Right. And sure enough, four years later, he has the greatest single moment of anybody's career that did not involve winning a major championship. Yeah, getting this semifinals of the U.S. Open in 91. Isn't it amazing, though, when you look back at, uh, you know, I was thinking just about Borg, because Borg basically retired in his mid-20s, right? And he's won, he'd won 11 majors. And when you look at the top guys now playing into their mid to late 30s and, you know, just keeping themselves in great shape, and Borg was arguably the, the fittest guy on the planet at that point, was uh, a physical marvel. Just imagine, you know, you can imagine if Borg had been able to stay the course and didn't walk away when my brother beat him at, the, at Wimbledon and then in that U.S. Open with the two passing shots and the two lobs to break his will in that uh, second or third set, whatever it was, and run away with it in the fourth, and he got on the plane to Sweden and never came back. Yeah. Patrick, I'm saying, I, that game, you know, we all wrote about that game because you, you look back at what had happened then, okay? Because to me, the single most impressive thing that John ever did at a major championship was two and a half months after he lost the tiebreaker match. And, and boy, I was there for that one too, okay? He comes back and basically wins the same final at the U.S. Open. I think they were both 55 games. I'd have to go back and mm-hmm. check my math. But they, they were both 
right around. So he, he comes back after just a, a, a match that should have broken his heart and his lungs and his legs. He wins it. Then he beats him at Wimbledon. Then he beats him at the Open again. So now at that point, it was just, we didn't know it at the time. Borg had decided that after all he'd given, he just couldn't like go back, like a boxer going back into the gym. He just couldn't go back and try to figure out a way to beat John. John had the greatest line about that to me. I, I, I don't know if you remember this. Way back when, um, when he was married to Tatum, I did a cover story on him for mm-hmm. um, Esquire magazine. Right. And John said, it never occurred to Bjorn that I could screw up. Right. And it was so, it was such, I don't know if you ever said that to you. It, it was such a smart take because Bjorn just made this assumption, or we're, we're assuming he made the assumption, that he just he couldn't beat John then, and and it's not considering who he was and what he had done in tennis, but he he stole what Mary Carrillo calls the James Dean of rivalries. Fourteen matches, right? Fourteen matches. Look at what Djokovic and Federer and Nadal and all that stuff. They played fourteen matches, each one seven. And and if you, I know you love this sport the way I have always loved this sport. Um, we got cheated on that one. Holy oh, big moly. time. I mean, it, it is it is incredible because you look at the runs that different players have had. You know, for a while, Jimmy would beat John a bunch of times in a row. Then Lendl came along, same thing. Lendl would drub him for four or five in a row, and then John would turn it around. And and when you look at even Federer and Nadal Djokovic, the way, you know, they've sort of gone in phases. So I always wonder about that. And also, I also remind myself when people are talking about the all-time greats, Mike, and obviously the first thing they do is count the number of majors. You remember this back in the day in this in throughout the 70s and through um the uh the 80s as well that the Australian Open was an afterthought for most players you know and and I remember when Borg was going for the slam you know he won Wimbledon won the French won Wimbledon then always came to New York to try to win the third of the four because remember the Australian used to be during (laughs) the Christmas break around in December and I remember that one year I think it was a year you're talking about when Borg won the epic final against John. And then they said to him, someone asked John, well, are you going to go to the Australian? He said, I'm only going to go if Borg wins the open. Cause then I'll, st- I'll, I'll at least make him earn it. But uh, that's, so right. that's why those numbers to me of all time majors are skewed. Cause Borg never played the Australian open. John played it just later in his career when, when he wasn't really a threat to win it as much. Uh, so th- that to me tells, you know, lets me know, reminds me that those overall numbers are a little bit skewed in hurting guys like my brother and Borg and even, even Jimmy, you throw him in there as well. Oh no. I've talked about this at length with Jimmy, Chris, Martina. Winning majors was not the obsession with them that it became with Fed and Pete before that. You know, it, it, it just wasn't. As, as Chris said to me, who wanted to go to Australia at Christmas time? Right. Okay. So, and Connor said, he said, listen, I, I, I was hungry to win major championships, but he said, we were just trying to win tournaments. We were just trying to get space in the sports section. Right. We were just trying to get people to, to notice us. And it's a, it's another reason why Jimmy's won more singles championships than, than, than any guy who ever played, but they were not as obsessed with doing it as, as these three guys are, uh, especially, I mean, it's the, the numbers are just insane. I mean, your brother, Jimmy Borg won 26 majors among them. Okay. And I think the other guys are up to what? 56 now. It's, it's like yeah, 2019 and 17. Right. Like exactly. Yeah, so it's 56, 56. 56. Yeah. It's crazy. And, but 
you can't tell me if conditioning, blah, 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 and everything else, and if those numbers didn't matter, that those numbers wouldn't be different. But nobody wanted to go to Australia. It was, and, and then, you know, the brilliant move finally by tennis was making it first. I'm so I'm so interested to hear and so glad to hear that story about Bud, the great Bud Collins, who was just a legendary columnist and then on TV with NBC for so many years. Oh, he, he was a guy at Wimbledon, and so he passed away a few years ago, just an unbelievable person and career. But you were around, Mike, in those days in the 70s when uh, tennis, the U.S. Open was at Forest Hills and then, of course, made the move to Flushing Meadows. And I know you've talked about this but in, in, and how that – you know, it, it came from a sort of a country club type sport to being, you know, more right. for the everyday person. And, and, you know, tennis in a lot of ways is still fighting that battle. Uh, but, the, but in those years, when you saw that transformation, obviously Connors, uh, my brother Borg, Vitas were a big part of that, Nastasi, and those guys with the personalities. How did that feel covering it as a journalist at those times as a sort of seeing this sport sort of just take a whole huge step forward in the public eye. Patrick, the guy who ran the USTA, who made the move, Slew Hester, was one of the great visionaries in, in sports history. And, and as you recall, they thought he was crazy when he walked away from Forest Hills. And he said, I can get that place built in a year. Well, he got it built in a year because the U.S. Open was going to go to Houston, I think, mm -hmm. while they waited to build the National Tennis Center. And, and that first year, that first year, I, I, you were talking about a game that John played against Borg that was quite meaningful in the 82 Open Final, okay? Jimmy was playing a match against Panada, okay? Right. In Lewis Armstrong Stadium, and in the, it's somewhere, I forget when it was in that match, he hits this crazy running shot around the post, and the place made a sound that I had never quite heard tennis make before. And, and I, I turned to Bud and I said, you know what? The Open's here now. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, it, it takes, all it takes is a moment. Okay. Right. But as important as Board and, and, and Vitas, our dear buddy, were, John and Jimmy were essential to the building of, of, the, of the U.S. Open. I don't think they'll ever build a statue <laughs> to either one of them. <laughs> Probably not. No, no. But, but no. I'm telling you something. I'm, I'll die on this hill. Okay. Those guys were an essential part of building what the U.S. Open is now. And it started with, with, with Jimmy. And, and then there was the moment where he said, you might not like me, but I like you. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and then, you know, we got two kids from Douglaston playing in the, the U.S. Open final a few years after that. And all of a sudden, it was a New York thing. It was a New York place to be. And, uh, you know, I, all I, every time you mention the Masters, by the way, they did a, a special on the Tennis Channel the other day about Venus. I don't know if you saw any of it. Um, I did, yeah. But my kid, my, my youngest son works at the, out there uh, at the Tennis Channel. He's having a ball now. But, Patrick, I was there the night. He said, nobody beats Venus Carolina 17 times in a row. <laughs> right. I, 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 yeah. I was sitting in the front row, and there was a you know, the look on his face. Yep. And you, you knew something great was going to happen, and he kind of pointed a finger. <laughs> he said, nobody beats Venus. And, and I'm so happy that it has taken on a life of its own, and it gets referenced every time somebody um, breaks a long streak. You know, I was with him in London the night after he lost 8-6 to Borg in the semifinal. Right. And 
And as you, you know, you know this, there was a cast of millions. It was someplace on the King's Road. And he and I are sitting and of course it's, it's the table's full of whoever his best friends were that night. Okay. <laughs> right. Understood. And it's, yeah. it, it's about midnight that night and the place is loud and everybody's laughing except me. And he turns to me apropos of nothing. And he said, I should have come in behind that second serve. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most heartbreaking moments yep. that, that until, you know, and then you remember what it was like in that church that day. When, oh, uh, man. Was that something? I mean, that was that was an extraordinary event because when I saw Jimmy and John and Bjorn as pallbearers, I thought there's one, two, and three in the world one year picking up the casket with number four in the world that year inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, we had a lot of fun in those days, did we not? Uh, it was amazing. I'll tell you one other quick Vita story that you may not know. It was the year he uh, got to the finals of the French and he was about to play Borg in the final, and he was staying at you know one of the nice hotels there off the Champs Elysees. And yeah. we know Vitas, and as you said, you know he liked to go out and have a good time. Well, he he apparently came back to his hotel pretty late, you know, like in the <laughs> middle of the night, okay, on Saturday yeah. night before the uh, before the final was later that day. So the guy was, uh, you know, the doorman outside the hotel. He came, Vitas came strolling in about four or five in the morning. <laughs> And the guy said, uh, "Mr. Garolitis, what do you? I mean, what are you doing? You, 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 you're playing the final later today against Bjorn Borg." He said, "Listen, if you had to play Borg best of five on clay, you'd be out all night too." <laughs> no, I had never, I never heard that story. I thought maybe Patrick, you didn't hear that one. Yeah, Patrick, I've been thinking about it, and after watching that special the other day and, and listening to Mary tell her stories, Patrick, he ought to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, you, I, you know, you forget, you know, you forget. He played a U.S. Open final. He played a French Open final. He won the Italian when the Italian was a lot more meaningful than it is now. Yep. And he won an Australian, and I think he won, what, 15 titles? I, the more I think about it, I, you can make a pretty solid case about Vitas being in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and, and he was going to go on and have a great TV career. In fact, that's par- par- partly how I got into TV, believe it or not, was when, when he passed away unexpectedly, CBS at the time. I had started doing a, a few things for ESPN, and CBS was looking for someone to take over sort of Vetus's role on the late-night show and the studio guy. So Bob Monsbach, as you, you know, of course, was a longtime yeah. producer for CBS, great guy. He was, he, I guess he was just having a conversation with my brother at one point and said, oh, we need to find someone to uh, take Venus's spot. And my brother, you know, was looking out for his little brother. So why don't you give my brother a shot? Because I had started doing some stuff for ESPN. So uh, I, I was sort of torn, you know, and taking Venus's spot because, uh, you know, he was one of my heroes. And I used to play with him. He used to practice with me all the time and give me tips. I played him in a couple exhibition tournaments even when I was first coming out. So uh, in some ways I was, I was thrilled. Uh, but also a, a little melancholy about taking his spot because I think he was awesome on TV. He was going to have a great career in television, and uh, he was sort of getting him, himself back together, you know, in that stage of his life, playing golf all the time, doing the TV, and then, uh, you know, just like that, we lost him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny that his passing really, you know, it, it, it kind of touched off this domino effect in the McEnroe family, you know, because – I don't think John would have gotten into it as soon if it had if if Vetus hadn't passed away, and then and then and, and all of a sudden now we we got you and Chris and John in those big finals, and it's 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 
it's so much fun. It, it's just, it's, it's so much fun. So let me ask you a question. Okay. What is it going to be like about the second week of June when you are not on your way back to the All England Club? Well, you know, when the, when the announcement first came out, which wasn't that surprising to us on the, in, the, in the tennis world that, the, that Wimbledon was going to be canceled this year, it really it was a shot in the gut, Mike. I mean, you know the history of Wimbledon and the way they've... Oh, God, yeah, I love it. Balan- My favorite, Patrick, yeah. center court at Wimbledon. People ask me this all the time, and I tell them. And you, you know me well enough to know that tennis is my first love, okay? Center court at Wimbledon is my single favorite venue of any big venue in, in, in sports. Wow, it's my really? favorite place wow. to be. Yeah, and when, when I heard, I'll tell you, I, I, will, I will think about that because uh, one of the things I love to do in the couple of days before the tournament, even during the tournament, especially those first few days when the grass is still pretty pristine as you know, we're lucky enough to get there early before they open the gates to the fans. I love to walk around the grounds, look at them fixing the flowers and getting everything just right, moving the chairs, the benches where people sit to have a drink and the meticulous preparation of each and every court, not just center court, not just court one, but watching the grounds crew out there, getting the lines ready, measuring the bounce of the ball. To me, that's what makes Wimbledon unique and special. So it's going to be, it's going to be even tougher when it's, uh, you know, that last week in June, first week in July, 4th of July, we always think about uh, breakfast at Wimbledon and those great years at NBC. And now we've been lucky enough to do it at ESPN for so many years. So we will, we will miss it, uh, just like we're missing everything else in the sports world right now. And we're just hoping that this thing passes and that uh, we can get back to the sports that we love. I know it's given you your, li- your livelihood and your career. You've, you've done an unbelievable job. I got to ask you, though, about, uh, the, you know, before I let you go, because all the um, amazing books you've written, the, the, the novels for you know, kids and, and the sports books that you've become so successful with, New York Times bestseller multiple times, we gotta get, I got to get you to one, write one, Mike, about tennis. Because you do, you know, oh, I know I'm you got foot. Patrick. No, no. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to. And I'll tell you something. I, I, I know we're running out of time. I'm, I'm sitting next to my writing desk up, uh, upstairs in our home, okay? And I am looking at a picture of me with my arm around Zach Luprica, who's my youngest, yep. who loves tennis the way I do and has now got a, you know, an outlet for it, working for the Tennis Channel, standing outside center court um, two years ago at Southwest Hall, uh, the two of us. Yep. And I promised him now that since this year got banged, um, that when there is next to Wimble, we will go there. And I will leave you since we started with Bud, Patrick. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you one more Bud Collins Please. Story, okay. As you know, across the street from the All England Club, I think it still exists, was the Wimbledon Cricket Club back in the day, okay? Mm -hmm. And it was a grass court tennis club, all right? And Bud scammed us into somehow becoming members. He made sure that we got club ties. (laughs) It cost like 10 pounds a year, (laughs) right? okay? And and we used to go over there, and, and you had to dress in white, and we'd go in the morning before play would start, and our goal every day was to find a couple of opponents who um, looked like they were old enough to have booked a ticket on the Titanic. Okay. <laughs> like and, you might have a chance. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. We were looking for people who were like between 60 and dead. Okay. Right. And, and I, <laughs> Bud and I played a lot of tennis, and Bud, as you know, was actually good. He, you know, he called himself a hacker, but he actually had a national title in, in Norfix. Okay. And so one day we're playing, and, and he comes up, Patrick. And there's a short ball, and he dunks it into the net, 
and he throws his racket. Now he tosses it down on the ground, which I'd never seen him do. Yeah, very unlike him. Yeah. And I said, I said, Bud, what's the matter? He said, Michael, I came up on that ball, and I was about to hit a top spin backhand, and then I remembered at the last second. I don't have a top spin backhand. <laughs> oh, that is classic. That is great. Was he, here's my, my final question. Was he wearing shoes? No, he was not wearing right. shoes. Yep. And, you know, Patrick, one time I said to him, I said, but how come I always have to play the ad court? And he put his hand on my shoulder. He says, well, we want to win the first point, don't we, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember watching him at, uh, up at Longwood, up in Boston, his longtime club, uh, playing on the grass with the bare feet. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Mike, I appreciate so much you coming on. I've looked up to you for many, many years and appreciate your, your passion for tennis and uh, what you've done in your career. Just covering every angle has been amazing to watch. I love to follow you on Twitter, and I know you write so often sometimes about politics and current events now. I look forward to that too. So I really appreciate you coming on and keep up the good work. Patrick, as you always know, I used to describe you as my four favorite McEnroe. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I hope, I hope that I will see you at the United States Open in September, I hope. From your lips to God's ears, I've got that right. Mike Lupica, everyone. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.